Our coverage of Māori issues over the last 160 years has ranged from racist to blinkered. It's a public apology for the way the media organisation has portrayed Māori from its first edition till now. It was really just quite awful and it's our day of reckoning. Kia ora, welcome to this episode in Season 2 of Recovering. I'm Frank Ritchie, Church Minister, Chaplain and Radio Broadcaster. Recovering is a media chaplaincy New Zealand podcast highlighting the excellent work of Aotearoa New Zealand journalists. In each episode, I sit down with a leading journalist to discuss the story that's had the biggest impact on them both personally and professionally. In this episode, I sat down with Carmen Parahi. Carmen connects to Ngāti Kahungunu, Ngāti Hine and Rungo Fakata. Carmen has spent many years in the industry, spanning most forms of media going back to 2001. And it was just last year, 2021, that Carmen received the award for Editorial Executive of the Year at the Voyager Media Awards. Carmen has spearheaded the significant apology from Stuff for 160 years of coverage that after research they deemed to be racist and marginalising against Māori. It was a massive undertaking both personally and professionally for Carmen. It was big for her, it was big for the staff of Stuff, and it was big for the identity of Stuff as a news agency, one of the biggest in Aotearoa, New Zealand, with reporting that dates back to the earliest papers of our nation. Within Stuff, Carmen now works as Pōtiaki Matua, which is a parent rather than a boss. Pōtiaki is both the news section of Stuff and the strategy that was built through the work of the apology. Now, as time marches on, that apology has the potential to stand out as a solid marker in our ongoing evolution as a nation. So I hope you find the conversation just as meaningful as I did. Kia ora, Carmen. Welcome to our humble little studio for uh, recovering. And I've got to say, it is a huge honour to have you here. After having emailed a little bit, uh, probably across much of the pandemic now, I would imagine, since we made our first contact, uh, I've wanted to sit down in person for a while. And what I really love, and I don't know if I should say this because then the other interviewees will hear it, really love that we're having lunch together after this. It's all about the lunch. I'm only here for the free food. It better be free as well, hey, Rev. Can I call you Rev? What, what shall I call you? You can call me Frank. You can call me Rev. Frank. You can call me whatever you're most comfortable with. And yes, the lunch is on me. Brilliant. <laughs> That's for everybody that comes on, comes on to this show ever after, expect a free lunch. <laughs> now, uh, Carmen, your journey uh, over the years, tell me how you got into journalism. Well, 21 years ago, actually. <laughs> um, but I was studying at Victoria University. I uh, learned a lot about um, our people and uh, also learned about politics because I was in near Parliament. So um, I loved being at Victoria University, but I did get to see issues, uh, policy-based issues, um, politics, and the impact uh, that colonisation had on our people. And so uh, through that lens and also working uh, part-time as a public servant, um, but also reading and engaging with the local papers there, which was the Dominion at the time and the Evening Post before they combined to become the Dom Post. And uh, I was appalled by some of the journalism, uh, the way uh, journalists would write about Māori issues um, affecting Māori. Uh, but not really giving Māori their own voice, 
their own mana motuhake or their tangan to actually express what the issue was from their perspective. And so I used to get quite aggro about it uh, as a student and and may, you know, I will confess that I may have turned up at a few protests in my time as a student, uh, which is really good because it's really good to know your history, uh, where you've come from, who the people are that have done all the work before you, um, and knowing that you, uh, as a Māori, a wahine Māori, um, you know, you just build on the work that um, they've done, that your own tūpuna have done. Uh, and so I got a little bit aggro and I had a chat with uh, people I was working with at the time, Trevor Moike, who was leading uh, Te Māngai Pāho and uh, Manutai Schuster, uh, and they both uh, supported my desire to go into journalism. I always did want to be a journalist. Like, let's be let, – as much as I was getting aggro – um, at the way Māori were being portrayed uh, during the 90s and how we'd been portrayed over time. Mm. I also loved the idealism of journalism because journalism at its greatest can be very effective at creating change, really good change, holding the power to account. That's why it was created. And so I did love it for that, being able to travel and I thought journalism would be a good way to fulfill my need to be a pirate and be an adventurer because when I was a kid I wanted to be a pirate <laughs> and so I just wanted to travel the world and see things and look at treasure you know gain treasures which was for me is knowledge mm. um, knowledge and experience are my taonga it's what I love to do and what um, I think is more important for me um, anyway as a, so they um, supported me into journalism school Massey University um, it was the last year of their uh, a one-year program it was a diploma program, and ever after it became a post-degree course, which is a shame, really, because the people in our course were hairdressers, mechanics, young people, older people, women who had um, uh, were uh, in an empty nest and were looking to start a new career. They were there as well, so we had a great variety of what New Zealand looked like at the time, and so, but still only two. Māori, three Māori um, out of a class of 40. Uh, and so I did my journalism diploma. I uh, nearly got kicked out of school, actually. It's brilliant. Um, and, okay, okay, now we have to pause there. Uh, yeah, you yeah. have to tell me how you almost got kicked out of yeah, school. Yeah, I, I don't, I won't let my kids listen to this because then <laughs> they might do things that I might not agree with. Um, so I went to the Central Leader and worked with a friend of mine who was uh, Phil Taylor, who was a journalist at Central Leader. And um, Ed Rooney, who was the editor there, and so instead of going back to school, I actually stayed at the Central Leader and kept working. <laughs> and then when I went back to school, they're like, "You need to stay at school, otherwise we're going to flunk you, and you're going to be we're going to kick you out." I says, "What? I've been doing what we're already, what we're training for anyway." So, uh, but that was that was you know a good wake up call, and so um, then I carried on and finished the course, uh, and then. Um, it was funny because I actually worked for community papers as a student, uh, as well as the Waikato Times, which I own by stuff now. So mm. I feel like I've come full circle because I'm back at stuff. Uh, so it's been 21 years since mm. I did that course. And so 21 years in journalism. Uh, I went to television. So that was in 2001. I did the course. 2002, I went to TV3. Uh, Mark Jennings and Mal Reed uh, gave me a job. And um, I hung around there for seven years. 
uh, did journalism in uh, uh, Christchurch as well, which is very interesting mm. for me. Uh, we thought maybe I was the only Māori journalist in the whole of the South Island at the time. Um, so I did get a bit lonely and found it quite difficult to mm. be um, fair, uh, but at the same time loved it uh, and really loved the people of uh, Canterbury and, and Waipounamu because I learned a lot about um, Te Iwi Ngaitahu or Kaitahu and um, and was uh, loved and supported by my Ratana Fano down there who are uh, uh, people. So luckily I had a f- one friend. I then borrowed her friends and her whānau and they looked after me. Um, but really did enjoy my time. Um, but did experience, you know, a bit of ignorance and, and racism mm-hmm. uh, towards me as a journalist. Um, also by my own colleagues. Um, and things like, can you please stop uh, pronouncing the te reo Māori names correctly because people don't know where you're talking about. Of course, I didn't stop pronouncing the Tadeo Māori words properly. So, But, you know, things like um, Kaniere is a beautiful place on the West Coast. And before I actually found out what the name was, people called it Lake Canary. And I kid you not, I thought it there were canary birds. Um, But when I turned up there to visit it, I saw that it was Kaniere. And I, from that point on, called it that. But um, people didn't like me doing that because they they don't know where it is. So uh, it was quite interesting. But, you know, my editors and reporter mates, they would stick up for me as well. I remember yeah. the editor um, telling one of a viewer who didn't like my report on a Māori story I'd done, uh, he took the phone call and basically said, well, if you, we don't want you watching our show. We don't want people like you watching our show anyway. So, you know, there was really, um, it was a really good time for me. And uh, it's where I met my partner at the time. And we had uh, my two daughters there. So they're both uh, Te Waipounamu children, uh, even though I'm Ngāti Kahungunu Ngāti Hine. And their dad's Tainui. So, um, so really good times uh, and stayed in television, went to Māori television, loved it there. It's now Whakāta Māori, mm. um, which it should always have been Whakāta Māori and most people called it that anyway. Um, and then went to TVNZ and Whakāta Māori again. So people have heard me complain about the journalism industry and how dif- there has been difficulty over the years and say, well, why would you stay? Mm. Because, one, I love the high ideals, the high principles of journalism. Um, and so because I actually worked in uh, Māori media, and working in Māori media is what kept me culturally safe. Mm. And I didn't have to worry about cultural aspects. We would even laugh about them and mock each other's iwi, our waiata, the way we would do haka or our pronunciations. Um, but those things didn't have to be explained or um, sometimes, you know, in mainstream media you have to, sometimes it feels like you have to apologise for things when in fact we don't. So um, that's why I've been able to stay in there a long, uh, a long time because I've been kept safe by my own people. Seems to me that there would have it would have required a fair amount of tenacity to move into journalism, though. If you're seeing things in the 90s that, is, that are quite racist, you go and do your course, there's only three Māori there. I look back on uh, reporting historically, I look at Parihaka and the reporting around there to discredit uh, the, the village. I look at 
just so much, so much historical reporting. I think back to the Kingitanga movement. They had a paper that they printed, and then the government, uh, of course, wanted to discredit that. So you had Rewi Maniapoto, who eventually did away with it, went and ransacked it, got rid of the people who were involved, because it was just a whole lot of disinformation and lying. So there's a there's a solid history there of Māori being treated poorly by media. So you see the problem in the 90s, and I can only imagine what that would have looked like. It's got to take some tenacity to go, I am going to step into this, where the natural instinct for anybody who feels like they're being mistreated by a power organisation would be to step away. You call me stupid. No, I'm calling you. <laughs> I'm calling you tenacious. Oh, oh tenacious. All oh, right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and also I wanted to do something for my people, mm. and I had those conversations uh, with different people over over time uh, who knew that's what I wanted to do. Uh, but I did. I also love um, English. Mm. I love the language because I've you know grew up reading English books, um, and so I've learned to love the English language. But also know that there's power in language, right? And so by uh, not loving and supporting te reo Māori, New Zealand, I'm talking about, and our society, it means we've suppressed Māori. Mm-hmm. And so um, for me, it, it was just my way um, of being able to um, do something for um, Māori, for, to do something for my people. Um, and I thought because I loved journalism, um, and love to write and love to tell stories, it would be my way of being able to help where I could. Yeah, and so even though I did start in mainstream, I did that on purpose because I wanted to learn about it, how it operated. Um, and I also grew up in Hastings in the 80s when the mongrel mob, and I grew up in Flaxmere, even though I'm from Bridge Park, I actually grew up in Flaxmere, and the mongrel mob were really establishing itself then, mm-hmm. and it was terrifying. It was awful to grow up in that space because of what I saw happening to young men and young women in our community uh, and our families as well. And so when I, uh, in the th- uh, at 3 News, actually, one of our producers says, oh, Carmen, where did you grow up? And I says, oh, Flaxmere. And he says, oh, fuck, you did well to get here then, didn't you? And I thought, <laughs> what do you mean by that? Yeah. And so what he meant was, uh, because Waxmere had a reputation, an unfair one, uh, mm. because I'd grown up there and there were really good people and still are in Flaxmere. So um, that's part of our learning as well now is um, stop uh, how the media can vilify a community like South Auckland. Anything bad happens somewhere near in a some place in South Auckland, instead of just calling out that community, that um, actual place, we say the whole of South Auckland, mm. and so South Auckland's been given this very unfair reputation, which is the same as Flaxmere, Highbury, and other places around um, Aotearoa. Mm. Obviously, being involved in Māori media was a more comfortable space, very understandably. Why... It added its own issues, though. Yeah, I could imagine. Yeah. Why move out of that then and back into a place like Stuff? Well, actually, Frank, uh, the only reason I left Māori television is because they moved and it was taking me two hours to get there one way. <laughs> okay. And so I just really couldn't um, – I couldn't do that anymore. So at the moment, it takes me an hour and a half one way to commute to stuff, um, but I can work from home. And I knew digital 
um, is a place of the future. Mm. It's where I'd already done 15 years in television and I wanted to do uh, something new and a new digital was the place to go because it really um, transforms the way we engage with the news media and tell our stories, mm. yeah. All right, let's move into the, the big topic that we're going to talk about, the, uh, the stuff apology to Māori for the historical, uh, for, well, for coverage, not historical, right up until the moment of the uh, apology. That's a really big deal. So Sinead Boucher buys stuff for a dollar, and it's, it was clear right from the get-go that there were some cultural shifts happening uh, for Māori, for women, uh, just in terms of general coverage and how the place operated. Then the apology happened. That sort of stuff doesn't happen by accident. That's a really big deal. So talk us through the apology. The stars aligned, Frank. The stars <laughs> aligned. They really did because um, I've spoken to Australian media since then and I've said to them very bluntly, uh, if we were still on Australian ownership, the work we've been doing would never have happened mm. at all. So um, I can put it down to Sinead Beltra being open to uh, being uh, representative of a old Teotihuacan New Zealand rather than just New Zealand, New Zealand, because um, our society is shifting. So uh, she already knew that um, as a media organisation we needed to shift. Um, what's been really interesting about Sinead buying stuff for a dollar was we were a week away from being closed down. Mm. And a thousand, nearly a thousand people, hundreds of journalists and their whanau uh, losing their, their livelihoods at the beginning of the pandemic. So the fact she did that was really amazing. Um, but at the same time, uh, society was shifting. So we had Black Lives Matter. We had Me Too. We uh, had a lot. We had um, Labour. We had the pandemic. So there were many, many shifts um, that we had to reflect because all news media should reflect and influence society. And so there was a, myself and others who thought it was time we needed to change journalism because the way we'd, we were telling our stories is very adversarial. So journalism historically comes from Europe. It's created uh, in Europe and uh, the British in particular created a very adversarial type of journalism, um, which is great when you're holding the powerful to account, but it forgets the fact that news media, the news media is very powerful. And so who's keep holding them to account? Mm. And so it's really important for us that we held ourselves to account. What did that look like? Um, and over time, there were things that were happening, not just at stuff everywhere in different news media organisations that I wasn't happy about and thought we could do better. And so one Saturday, I um, got quite angry in my little room at home. And What was sparking that anger? Can you give me... Uh, it was examples of journalism that was adversarial but unfair to Māori. Mm. They weren't um, being fair and giving Māori their perspective or their opportunity to provide their own perspective of, of, of an issue. Mm. But it wasn't just one. It was multiple things happening. But it was also reflective of the way we would deal with um, issues like abuse and rape 
and um, organisations dealing with um, sexual harassment within their own organisation. So there's a whole lot of stuff where you just get to the point where we're like, our journalism needs to be better. Society is demanding more from us. We need to be better. So how do we do that? So I um, got a bit aggro one Saturday. I called up a few friends. There were 14 of them. Asked all 14 if they would support me approaching Sinead to talk about our concerns about the way journalism is being done at stuff. Why didn't you just quit? Oh, I could have, but I had a mortgage to pay. <laughs> Children to feed. No, I'm not. Um, because I really do believe in journalism. Like, I really believe. It's the high ideals. I hate gutter journalism. I hate gotcha journalism. I, it's not my thing. It has a place in journalism. It's really important that it's there. And humans actually love it as well. Um, but journalism can be many things. It doesn't have to be just adversarial. Mm. Um, and I just thought, show some leadership as well. Uh, and had a chat to some friends of mine who are leaders in their own right in different industries around the country. Uh, and uh, one in particular, um, she said, go for it. You know what you need to do. And so made those calls, all 14 of them. So... Paula Penfold, Ali Moore, Eugene Bingham, um, to our young reporters like Mandy T, Glenn McConnell, they all said, yes, we'll support this. Flo Kerr, uh, Jodie O'Callaghan, oh, I'm going to forget everybody, but um, so they, and Michelle Duff, so they all said yes. And so the next day I said, look, I'm going to approach Sinead, I'm going to put an email together, I'm going to, can you be a part of it? They're like, yes, let's do it. So rang Sinead the next day. She took my phone call, which was really cool. <laughs> and then uh, I says, look, um, there's a few of us that are not happy the way journalism is uh, going at the moment. We think we could be better. Um, and this is what we'd like to do. And she said, yep, okay, what do we need to do? I've been thinking about this. Great, Carmen. So sent an email, put our names to it, and then just started it. So that work became potiaki. And potiaki is um, our strategy, um, and it is also a group of people who just focus on that in editorial. So mm. it is more than just a section on stuff. Potiaki is something that is a strategy that um, makes us, that helps us with different actions. So there's so many actions that have happened under Potiaki. So Potiaki, just very quickly, Po standard foundation, lifting yeah. up something like that, Tiaki care, empathy. Yeah. So a guard post. Okay. Yeah. Potiaki is a guard, guard post. Metaphorically, it is a guardian. So mm. um, we would, traditionally, we would use a Potiaki and put them in the ground. And they would be there to warn people when they go into an environment, yo, mind your behavior. Um, and also, um, like, physically in that environment. But also to think about their own behavior in that environment. So that is what it's there for. Yeah, I can see how that plays into quite an amazing strategy in a media organization then. Yeah, because we represent Aotearoa, mm. New Zealand. So um, everything we do is about representation, um, storytelling, all things to do with the news, right? So um, so that's what Potiaki, and so we developed Potiaki really quickly um, and then just created a whole lot of actions, which was putting people in different places, creating the section on the 
on um, stuff. Um, and then part of it was checking our own behavior. And that became Tamato Pono. So Tamato Pono, our truth, was just is one of the actions of Potiaki. Yeah, Potiaki is the driver of all of this, mm. all of this change. So we're moving stuff from being a media company that represents New Zealand to a media company that represents um, Aotearoa, New Zealand. Mm. And at some point, it will be a media company that represents Aotearoa. Brilliant. Yeah. So those are quite easy phases for people to understand and understand what where we're going. Mm. Mm. So Tamato uh, Pono was a huge investigation. We investigated ourselves. Could be quite weird, I suppose, investigating ourselves. No, weird, but hard because when you're in a culture, in a, in a world or a bubble of any sort, it's really hard to see the problems of your own thing. And for institutions, when things get pointed out to them, let alone finding it themselves, which is a a much bigger stretch, the instinct is to want to point out what's great about the institution in defence. That's not what you have done. And it hasn't been an external thing that's caused that to happen, which is usually the case. Somebody gets called out on something. Stuff has gone on that journey itself, looking so much work. There's so much work to look at. Sifting through all of that to analyse it and go, we have had a problem. It's a big deal. Yeah. It took months and a lot of people. And we have to, we had to guide ourselves um, and each other through it as well. And it wasn't easy because people were seeing things for the first time mm. uh, and seeing the racism, seeing how we had marginalised Māori because the focus was just on tell Māori and our representation of Māori since our first papers began. So... At the time, it was like 160 years of newspapers across the country. And it was just evaluating it, assessing it. How did we do it? And, of course, people are like, well, we've got different lenses now. Of course, it's going to look different. And, yes, and we weren't rewriting history. We were just looking at history and what we'd done. And if we wanted to carry on what we'd been doing into our future, that's a lot of what it was about whether it was time to assess, um, change, acknowledge, and then move and then move into something way more interesting. Um, and so it was, it was difficult. People couldn't see what the issues were. Mm-hmm. So uh, anecdotally, we'd always been told, oh, the mainstream media are so racist. Oh, you've created stereotypes. We needed the evidence to, to tell us how we'd done it and if we'd done it. So... Um, it was fantastic. Uh, we had journalists from every newsroom involved. Um, you know, we got together um, consistently to talk to each other, to plan it all out. To We got our um, librarians, our researchers in to work with us as well. Um, we had really senior reporters involved as well. So and what it meant was that we it was a really true investigation of ourselves. Um, we had to make sure that people couldn't accuse us of bias, that couldn't accuse us of, oh, what is this stuff when you're just looking at yourselves in the mirror? Rah, rah, rah. Um, and so we just wanted to make sure it was authentic as well. Uh, and we didn't decide to apologise until way down the track. Mm. Um, so after we'd got all our stories together, our findings, we talked about it. What did you see? What didn't you see? Because 
some people would say, oh, well, I can't see any overt racism here. I can't see how we've marginalised Māori here. And so it became about, well, what isn't there? Oh, there are no Māori voices here. Mm. There's there in a couple of occasions throughout the whole history of the paper, but two occasions out of 150-odd years is not enough to say that we have truly, fairly represented Māori. And so it was helping people to see it that way, to understand how we um, had been racist, how we had created stereotypes, how we had um, done things which were unfair mm. to Māori, but also created... So New Zealand society was influenced and persuaded by our newspapers about what Māori looked like. Mm. But those lenses being applied were Eurocentric lenses about what Māori and who Māori are. They were not Māori lenses allowing Māori to tell us who they were and what their stories were, what other issues affecting them. And so that's been really um, a great process for us. Of course, people don't, not everyone liked it internally. Uh, people didn't like it externally. Um, yep. How how was that journey for you emotionally? Because it's one thing to raise the issue, but us Pākehā are great too at going, having someone in our midst who raises something like this, and then that person becomes the focus for all things Māori. Uh, the same goes with pretty much any culture. Us Pākehā are brilliant at putting that load onto people, and then they become the mechanism by which we learn. You've you'd taken that on, that uh, raising the issue, how did it play out for you on a personal level? That's a good point you raised. So, so one thing that we have to get better at is when you raise an issue, also raise the solution mm. or options to create solutions. So uh, we didn't want to just bitch and moan about, oh, we've done this to Māori. We actually wanted to be able to f- find ways to fix it. Okay, how are we going to do this? What have we done? Uh, and then what are we going to do about it? And so, uh, yep, being Māori and um, taking on a leadership role in that, um, I did really feel the burden. Uh, people did try to support me as much as they could. Um, it is the it is a problem for many uh, Indigenous peoples or women or anyone, any marginalised person who, who takes on this sort of work inside any organisation or business. They do become the person to carry it all. So um, that has been recognised, though, um, internally, and people have tried really hard to support me as well to help get me through it. Um, at times it felt quite lonely and quite full-on and mm. quite burdensome as well because when you start when – when we started this, I knew it just we just had to keep going and going and going and going. And so I knew that I had to be in it for the long haul, that I had to see it through, uh, and that no matter how I felt about it, so I just really had to keep my emotions in check because um, it was actually really painful to see the racism, to see how we'd marginalised Māori, how we had... uh, So Charlie Mitchell did a fantastic story and showed us how the news media had made child abuse a Māori issue. Mm not a New Zealand-wide issue. And through that storytelling, um, that really shocked 
people to see how the news media can influence in a particular way if we're not careful and if we don't continually check ourselves, our behaviours and the way we do our journalism, it can lead to those sorts of results. Mm. And that not only hurts, that hurts Māori, but it not only hurts Māori, it hurts Aotearoa because if we're not able to recognise that it's a, it's a nationwide problem, we're not we're not able to deal with the problem. So that uh, is that line that gets bandied around every now and then. What's good for Māori is good for New Zealand. What's good for Māori is good for Aotearoa. I truly believe uh, that. So we're hurting ourselves when we when our representation is that poor because we're not acknowledging the breadth of, of these problems. Yeah. Also, in Charlie's story, what he showed us was that our non-Māori kids – Weren't, giving, weren't getting the recognition that they deserved and the issues around their whānau, what they needed. So what was happening is all the attention was on Māori whānau, but these other kids were just being left behind. They weren't given the same sort of attention, the same sort of aroha they needed for their stories to be told. Mm. That's what really upset me, actually, about Charlie's story. Yeah, that's fascinating. So then in learning to lift, recognising the problems we've got and how we represent one culture, and doing better there, there's a chance to lift all waka. There's a chance to lift everybody, everybody up by doing that properly because we're doing everybody a disservice when we get that wrong. Hitting send on the apology, I would imagine, well, metaphorically, hitting send on the apology, hitting publish, hitting print, would have felt like a really big deal because there's no doubt that there's going to be responses from all over the place and varied responses to that. It must have been a big day. Well, before we got to that big day of uh, doing the investigation, getting our findings together, realising what we'd done, what we're going to do about it, and then uh, weeks before we publicly apologised was the discussion around, do we publicly apologise? Mm. And that was a very difficult conversation, um, but we had no option but to apologise. And so how do we do that authentically? How do we do that to ensure that it's just not us signing off a piece of paper or just saying, oh, sorry about it. Oh, we had a look. Oh, yeah. Oh, sorry about that, everybody. Yeah, we'll promise not to do it again. You know, being really authentic and but ensuring that we had a work, a uh, program of work to support it after the apology. Mm. But it was getting it to the point of the day of the apology. Oh, my gosh. I, It was so stressful. One of the most stressful times of my life because it felt unbelievable to me that we were going to apologise, that we were uh, one of the biggest media organisations in New Zealand across the whole of the country was going to apologise publicly to Māori and getting that through the whole process and ensuring we brought people along, we also reached out to every iwi organisation we could find to let them know what was coming. We didn't tell them about the apology, but we gave them an idea about what was going to happen prior to the apology. Um, we also, as part of the investigation, talked to an iwi about them being part of the stories. They didn't want to be. Mm. And so uh, before the apology, I reached out to them again and said, 
look, I know why you didn't want to be a part of the investigation. We've done it. This is the, these are the things we're going, we've found, and I just want you to know before we do what we're about to do. And that was, there was silence on the end of the phone, and it was really great to be able to tell them that, and they says, okay, well, when you're ready, come and have a cup of tea with us. And that was really important to me. Uh, as you know, kai and cup of tea is everything. When you want to engage uh, and build relationships over time, that's how you do it. And so um, I didn't think it was going to happen. I hoped and believed we, we would get there. And so the day before, I reached out to a couple of uh, news people to let them know what was coming. And again, shock and silence down the phone. They're like, right, okay, let us know and we'll be ready to go. So um, I didn't let myself enjoy the moment until the day after the apology mm-hmm. because I was so stressed out about getting it over the line. Any big project over the line, it stresses you out. So I thought it was, um, yeah, it was great. And on the day, bef- the, on the day before the apology, uh, I actually thought about... Uh, my whanau. Hmm. What I love about what I'm hearing, Carmen, as a person of faith, uh, there's something really beautiful here that goes against a lot of human instinct. Um, when I think about the journey of faith, in my own journey of faith, it starts with an act of confession. It's an acknowledgement of our own brokenness. Uh, an acknowledgement of where we've stuffed up that makes no attempt to make ourselves look good. Institutions don't do that. Generally, they don't do it well. So what I see is an act of confession. Then the next step after confession is repentance. And we often hear the idea of repentance as, uh, again, admitting to some guilt. Oh, look, I, I stuffed up. But repentance... Scripturally, the idea of repentance is turning in a different in a different direction. Uh, in faith, it's this alignment with God. It's tuning myself as a musical instrument into the tune of God. Uh, so the next step for you guys then, after the confession, is repentance. It's doing it. It's doing it differently. How's that played out? It has been quite interesting. <laughs> Just time, because... What I didn't realise and what I should have, just knowing the stories of our tupuna mm-hmm. uh, and what they've been through to take their fights from Dame Fina Cooper through to Medazazi to um, all different people, Eva Rickard, knowing their story, I've, I should have known that it's not going to take two years to change the whole world. Mm-hmm. And I actually thought it would. I thought that after the apology, when we got all our work programs sorted out, that we would resolve all of the issues of the past and that would be the end of it. No, it's going to take a generation or two. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just here to uh, start it and help it along its way, um, but it will be for others to benefit from it and it will be them that will take it to the next level. Mm. 
I want to uh, acknowledge, since this is audible for people, they can't see what's happening, I want to acknowledge the taonga of your tears and the gift of your tears in this moment because it says it's not just a, it's not just a work fight, that is deeply uh, personal as well. Um, it's, it's massive and it's really hard to convey because it's easy to talk about this as a topic as opposed to a deeply held journey for many people that is built up over 160 years. Uh, and I'm quite aware of the limitations of a podcast like this that w- we simply cannot convey how big a deal that actually is. So I want to want to thank you for that personal side of, of what you've done as well. Well, it was the personal stuff that was driving my desire to make journalism better. So, because I think it's a because I because I think journalism can also help Māori, mm-hmm. and I've seen how it's helped Māori over the years. Right, so when we bring our issues and tell Māori to public awareness and attention, then it's reflected upon and change can happen. And so I really do believe in that ability to make change through journalism. Uh, And so it was personal for me because uh, the impact of journalism on um, my whānau and tūpuna over the years and even myself, you know, it it has hurt. Um, It has caused issues. It is part of the problem of one of the issues of colonisation is the news media. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's been really important for us that another work that we're trying to do is um, turn our monocultural lens of journalism into a multicultural lens of journalism. So we're trying to develop a multi-lens approach to journalism so that whatever, whoever you are and the biases you bring, um, we're going to give you the tools to be able to put multiple lenses on your eyes and your thinking to help you tell your new stories better. Mm. Mm, I like that. I like that. Which probably brings us to a, a closing bit of discussion, and that's about the future of journalism in New Zealand, because it has been a very Western lens, and it's operated in a very Western way for so long, but there's plenty of work going on with stuff, and I think about the Tirito Journalism Project, uh, bringing more representation into media, which will then shift how media operates, how stories are told, how investigations are done, all of it. So where do you see New Zealand where do you see Aotearoa and New Zealand media going? In the hands of our young people, of course. Yeah. Uh, every generation brings their own spin on things. So um, I've done some work built on the work of many others over many decades in the media. Uh, and people after me will just continue to build on that work. So it is, that's all it is over time, right, is that we can change things over time. And so one of the reasons I moved to stuff is because I do think um, digital is where we're going uh, because people use social media a lot. We're on our phones. We're on our um, tablets. And so it's really important that um, news media is there. But we want to tell stories differently. They're still going to give you um, the facts and the information you need, but we want to tell those uh, facts and information in a really interesting way, a creative way, a way that actually engages people in it. Uh, People are a bit tired of news being chucked at you, news, 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 facts, 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 facts. So it's becoming 
I think the news media will become more story time. Um, but it's, I think it's really important that we continue to hold the powerful to account, including the media industry and ourselves. Um, but I really look forward to multimedia journalism, uh, broadcasting, uh, you know, television and radio. It's really cool. Uh, and radio will probably be around when the world ends anyway, because uh, that's how good radio is. Um, but you can do podcasts like this, you can put it online, and you get more reach online as well, so you can reach more people. And so, yeah, I think in the future we're going to make spaces for multicultural voices in journalism, because it has been very westernised um, over the years, it's very monocultural in its perspective, but I do believe that we will have more people from a range of different cultural communities telling their stories their way, um, but it's still news and it's still informative and it's still holding people to account and ensuring that um, we're a part of New Zealand or Aotearoa society as well. Mm. Carmen, I was in the, I think it was the last Voyager Media Awards. I was sitting in the audience when you received your uh, award and it didn't have much awareness of you at the time. And I remember watching the staff, uh, staff and the, their response to you getting an award and it demonstrated your mana. Uh, and sitting here listening to you and being able to have this kōrero has only affirmed that for me. So my hope for you as a benediction, as a blessing, uh, my hope for you is that as time continues to march on, that you get to sit back and see the fruit of your work and to know um, to know you made a real difference, uh, that you did speak truth to power, and that media that media is the power you've spoken to, uh, and that you see more of the young people in your world uh, taking up that space and picking up the mantle that you're passing on. You have been a blessing uh, to media in Aotearoa New Zealand, so thank you. And once again, ngā mihi nui, Carmen. Thank you for generously taking the time to sit down for this kōrero. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting this series, and thanks to you for listening. I appreciate it. Also, a big thanks to Josh Couch and Steph So for producing this podcast, and Mick Andrews for his magical audio editing. If you appreciate this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and share it with someone else who'd like it. And remember to follow to catch future episodes. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we value our media. We demonstrate that by offering free, independent and confidential support for media professionals. So if you work in the media industry and want to chat with someone who gets it, head to mediachaplaincy.nz to arrange a catch-up. The coffee's on us. 